0: See site for details. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists and authors about the research that influenced their works. Or food scientists about cultures of a bacterial kind and more. Today we've got a special musical guest. Scottish composer Erland Cooper, that's him you're hearing right now, is known for playful, innovative, experimental projects. For example, he actually buried the only audio copy of one of his 2021 compositions. Then he left treasure hunt clues for people to try to find it, which one couple eventually did. In his newest album, Folded Landscapes, he is deep in conversation with the environment and our changing climate. The seven movements of the piece were recorded with the Scottish Ensemble Chamber Orchestra in both sub-zero temperatures and a sweltering studio. He then exposed the audio master tape to the sun on the UK's hottest day in history in July of last year, audibly altering the fidelity of the sound. One movement includes the voices of climate activists and news reports in a cacophonous montage. He's encased recording equipment in ice, recreated the acoustics of glacial caves in Norway's Svalbard, and performed acts of what he calls slow activism in the name of celebrating and cherishing the natural world and encouraging us to change. Writer Arwa Haider interviewed him earlier this year. I hope you enjoy.
1: This is the midsection of an eight-foot sculpture. Wow. And I thought it would be great for us to put the hydrophone, which is a microphone for recording underwater, inside the ice so we can kind of hear what the ice hears. So the sculpture is pointing at the piano. And inside that, we've well, we've got um, this kind of, block that's got a drilled hole in the top which we're going to place some water and then the hydrophone itself
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we'll test if it's working.
2: It's so beautiful to to look at and also kind of entrancing to listen to as well because obviously while I'm listening to you I can hear this kind of dripping backdrop rhythm of yeah just this sort of gentle but persistent.
1: So I've done this once this is the second time so the water's being collected in a Pelly case which has normally got a tape machine in it and it's just the perfect size for it it's almost like a little fountain
2: I was wondering Erlen, I mean there, there is such a, a gentleness and wonder to the work that you create both in terms of the music and the, the visual aspects of it and the, the ingredients that you put together but I mean to me it, it feels like activism as well would you consider yourself an activist as an artist
1: I think artists whether their activism is personal, internal, or external. They all kind of contain or obtain that to some point. I don't like to be divisive. I like to let people come to things, come up with their own views, and engage in conversation rather than make statements. And this is, you know, where it's an opportunity to celebrate and cherish the natural world. So, what a fantastic thing. I mean, activism is a curious thing, isn't it? Some are more outspoken than others. I think I like to do things in a gentle manner where people can engage with it, come into it, bring their conversations, their points of view, or just come and sit in silence. Art has the ability to kind of make you feel something. Generally, when you feel something, you make changes. And music in particular... It's a really good catalyst for that. So I suppose I wanted this this project to kind of be something that people could come and celebrate the themes, talk about them, engage with them in a world that isn't quite as cacophonous, isn't quite as violent, but I would call it a slow violence of change. You know, you never look at paint drying. You never watch an, a sculpture melt yet you and i are sat here transfixed yeah the absolutely. last five ten minutes i kind of Just...
2: can't take my eyes off the sculpture i'm looking at you when you're talking but it's
1: meditative
2: mm. i like that that phrase slow violence because it's it's almost in spite of itself a very beautiful phrase yeah you know it almost sounds like well i, like I ballet
1: it does now that's a nice um way to look at it i think of it in its cruelest and most beautiful terms of aging aging is the the ultimate slow violence of change isn't it where it happens to us all we change but you don't notice one day you wake up the gray hair or you wake up with a wrinkle that wasn't there the day before or did it progressively come who knows it's about noticing the detail and i think then when you notice these details they become really more interesting and That links back to the work that I hope to celebrate, which really just is about finding the magic of the everyday. You know, finding the natural world in a city, in East London, every day I I try to find a little pocket of that. It's important, you know, whether it's uh, something cruel like a pigeon that's run over on the road and I put it to one side or a cat that's been abandoned and has ended up in my studio to fix itself for three months or just a little park or a little green space in a council estate. Or like the other day where I heard the peregrine falcon in the Barbican Towers, you can hear it and then celebrate and enjoy it. And for me, it gives me, a, it's like a energy, a life force, I suppose. Yeah,
2: it's a, it is a life affirming thing, I think, particularly when it's an unexpected addition to your environment. But when I came to meet you today at your studio, I, I was just thinking like, I mean, I know this part of East London well, but it feels like it must contrast so strongly mm. with, with your background when you were a kid because you obviously grew up on Orkney. Mm. And I, I, I'm really curious about how, from an early age, how that environment, how that landscape shaped how you came to kind of approach your creative work. In addition to that, your parents were scientists as well, weren't they? they all feel Yes. Like...
1: Dad studied uh, zoology. My mother studied geography and I went to university. My parents are academic, my, my siblings are all very academic, doctors and things like that. And so we all studied, we all went to university. I didn't study classical music, I didn't work, study the arts and I wish I did, I wish I'd had that opportunity. It just never crossed my mind to, uh, to suggest it as an idea.
2: What did you study originally?
1: I started mechanical engineering and economics and focused on the economics for one reason and one reason only. It meant I could travel. And it took me to Budapest and Cadiz in Spain. All the while making music. I remember my father had a a master key for the school. He could open every door, you know every Yale lock it would open in the, in the school. And I used to pinch it from his top pocket. <laughs> I never asked, I'm sure he would have let me, but I pinched it and I would. I think I was the only kid breaking into the school to use the music room to figure out how to play the piano, to figure out how to work tape machines, I remember this went on for about three months and I thought I had a a rapport with the janitor. Then he told on me, (laughs) Mr Cooper, your son seems to be in the school before school and after school and at the weekends. Should he be?
2: That's such a shame you're busted because it sounds like you kind of created your own playground in there.
1: Well, dad then let me. And while all my mates were in the playground or playing football, I was in the music room alone. Not much has changed. I'm still uh, creating, like the studio we're in now, in these safe havens, hidden away, working. The only thing that's different is I now collaborate, and it's the greatest joy working with incredible musicians like Daniel Pioreau, the violinist, and the Scottish ensemble. It's such a privilege, and I'm able to do that, and I can write this work and then collaborate with these people. So that's the major change.
2: No, I can. I mean, I can hear what you're saying, and obviously, collaboration, both in terms of working with other musicians and artists, and working with scientists as well, plays mm. such a key role in the latest projects that that I'm aware have come to light. And um, your last album, Folded Landscape, and mm. and also the accompanying piano album. Can you tell me a little bit more about those projects, how they came to fruition?
1: Well, it's interesting. Actually, the more I think about how science played such an important role for my parents. And then in their education of us, the outside world being imperative in our upbringing and understanding of animals and their ecosystems. You know, it was by default, we were taught this every day and encouraged to value that. So science has always played a major role in this feeling of exploration. And I wrote a trilogy of work about the islands, the elements themselves, air, sea, and land. And a writer had written in one of the broadsheets, that you know, there was this clickbait of uh, headline or whatever, and it said, nature's songwriter. And whilst my colleagues were high-fiving, I, 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 felt, I felt quite embarrassed inside because it's hyperbole. What was the word?
2: It Hyper- is kind of hyperbole. I mean, it's, it is such a good, um, it is such a good soundbite because I can see that repetitively yes. uh, sort of
1: stalking you. <laughs> since it then. stalks me, but then I thought, OK, if that's going to stalk me, work it harder. Work harder. I had a conversation with my dad. We would talk about science and we'd talk about nature, what nature represents, the elements themselves. And I thought, OK, well, if I'm going to be called that, I need to collaborate with nature on a much deeper level than the elemental, just the, the, you know the idea of um, changing weather and things like that, or uh, a sense of place. My music's always got uh, I hope always has a feeling of a sense of place. It's really important. It's a landscape that creates an internal landscape. that's what I'm trying to work on. And I thought, how could I go a little bit deeper? How could I dig into the soil a bit harder? And then I thought the soil itself. So um, just before this Folded Landscapes project, I recorded a classical work, my first kind of concerto of a violin for Daniel Piro and his studio collective. Mm-hmm. Recorded them up at the RCS in Glasgow, an institution I could only dream of going in as a child and being able to go in in an almost maverick manner. Record this work and uh, everybody signed an NDA. And the reason they signed the NDA was they would be the only people that would hear it in that form. I put it on to a quarter inch spool of tape, which you see in front of you. I deleted every digital file that existed from the finished mix. I took that tape, traveled a thousand miles back to Orkney from London and buried it, or planted it, as I like to say, in the soil about three foot deep in a location special to me and on top of the tape and the tape was just in the soil pure you know pure touching the earth and the the minerals and the water on top of the tape was a biscuit tin with a score and a letter from me if you find this you know how to get it back to me and on top of that was a fiddle and then i filled it with earth And then put on top of that, a effectively, X marks the spot. But it was my own special Norwegian or Scandinavian rune, Mm -hmm. a runestone. And to cut a long story short, the reason I did that was two or threefold. One, an opportunity for the soil as this kind of aleatoric element in the creation of the music. It would cause the tape to disintegrate effectively the magnetic tape doesn't like soil, it doesn't like moisture, it doesn't like different pH levels, it doesn't like sunlight, it doesn't like salt. (laughs) But I kind of like what a controlled amount of those um, articles can do to the tape and it creates these artifacts of sound, these drops, these crackles, these breaks, these kind of splurgy (laughs) gloopy noises. So that really interested me. I could I could put it all onto the tape. There's only one copy that exists. So all of a sudden it becomes valuable. And by valuable, I mean has a value to me. It suddenly becomes precious. And so it, for me, it was a meditation on what's valuable in the arts anymore, mm. in a world where everything is so instant and free and you can get it. There's millions of bits of music uploaded every Friday. Is it as precious as it used to be?
2: And and you buried this tape, these tape, this tape in 2021, I think. That's didn't right. You? And so the actual revelation is 2024, June 2024. June 2024. And at what's wonderful? London's Barbican Centre.
1: That's right. But the most wonderful thing to me is it was found.
2: Yeah. How long did that take?
1: It, it lasted half of its three years. And when I was chatting to my dad, he said, well, it might not have survived another Orkney winter. There might actually be some music on it. <laughs> He's right. So when um, these two wonderful couple, a tape enthusiast and a uh, local projectionist in the cinema uh, in Orkney, mm. and they, they had been following the clues that I'd been releasing and into the world, and uh, I got a phone call out of the blue saying, hello, um, got your tape and I thought it was a tape delivery upstairs and I said just come round the back it's the cobbled street beside this there's a black door number 26 they said no no we've we've got your tape in the back of our car it's it's a bit gammy and there's a rather mucky looking violin and I sat down and I just said tell me everything I suddenly felt incredibly precious I don't don't get it hot, or, or don't put it by the fridge, or or you know don't uh, pull out the spool. All that, of all of a sudden, it, beca- it became so precious. But I had put it in the ground a year and a half yeah, earlier. That's so
2: that's so funny that your relationship with it kind of transformed within Changed. that. Yeah, yeah, within that sort of second of realizing it actually hadn't been lost, and
1: and I had to I had to get a sense of who they were. Understanding who the and there such kind people. They seemed really
2: dedicated, to like towards finding this. This
1: well, Victoria and Dan Rose deserve some sort of medal because, well, they they actually get the stone as a gift. I think that's what they get in the end, and they're going to come to the concert as my guests and we'll talk about it. But they found it not by the clues, although the clues in a way helped them find the geographical point on the island. They found it by rock formation, based on a photograph of a rock beside my feet.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: I mean, I I like the fact that so much of what you've been doing here is an unknown quantity, and it's kind of left, I mean, it's left to the elements. You're collaborating, as you said, deeply with the earth and with nature, rather than obviously taking themes of nature as inspiration is not a new concept. but actually. It would be really exciting to see and obviously hear what happens in, in June 2024. But in the meantime, and as you said, obviously this this wasn't the only project that you've been immersed in, mm. in in the last couple of years. And when the tapes for Car of the Runes came to light, you were already set to release a beautiful album earlier in 2023, Folded Landscapes. And in addition to that, you've created a piano album. Mm. And again, the relationship with the earth and temperature in particular is is really key here. Tell me a bit more. Temperature, uh,
1: yes. It was only a matter of time before I I wrote a piece of work that um, touched on the themes of uh, time, temperature and conversations surrounding climate change. And I'd been working on it for a a while actually, a couple of years in between things. And I thought, I think this is ready. It was a collaboration with Scottish Ensemble. Firstly, I thought it would be interesting to record them at sub-zero temperatures. So these classical musicians, you know, these incredible virtuoso <laughs> musicians, I took them into a, a factory in Glasgow, January the 8th, post-lockdown, and uh, recorded them at minus two or minus one or just below zero. And they all had their kind of mini gloves, you know, the, the, the fingerless gloves, and uh, big jackets and beanie hats. And I had a heat source that I would only turn on <laughs> after the takes because it was so loud, you know. And it was such fun. again, the faces, the smiles were beaming with this childlike wonder because it was something different to them and to me. And I recorded uh, sketches, eight, 20 sketches, lots of things to do with the narrative. I asked them to record, uh, write back play, back, play the score backwards and do all sorts of things. Uh-huh. This idea of playing with a timeline. Anyway, I took that away, then kept writing. So I took these sketches and developed those sketches into a, a kind of beefier body of work and then took them to the studio. So we have now gone to 20 degrees and I slowly turned that up. So by the end of the session, it was like 30 degrees controlling the temperature so we've basically gone from the sub-zero to kind of 30 degrees in the studio we're hot and sweaty and that was a kind of a process to really get under the fingernails of rising temperatures and it's a multi-movement work the original album that kind of starts in the sub-zero and by the end it's it's basically thawing over seven movements and uh The first one to four movements are probably quite austere. You know, it's it's a steep, glacial ascent. And then it kind of, it's like a toboggan ride of hope down the other end on side B. That's what I was hoping for. You know, there's this kind of Scottish classical Cayley on the sixth movement. And I have a fond memory of sweating in the studio as they were vigorously playing. It contrasted against the original recordings.
2: I love love that idea of Toboggan Ride of Hope because, I mean, I feel like listening to that work, there are such complex emotions. It's a very beautiful piece of work. There's other themes, there's a real poignant quality, and I often feel like there's a fragile beauty to some of the compositions, but there is an enduring hope as well. Mm. I guess it's a tricky, as adults, our kind of responsibility in terms of, you know, being custodians of, you know, what, future generations will have to live with. And also just the fact that we're now conscious that, yeah we're dealing with something that requires a proactive change in some way to, to counter environmental damage. But at the same time, you know, what's going to get through that if we don't believe that some good can come off Mm. that proactive change.
1: It was very kind of you to to listen and, and to say such lovely things about the work and that it evokes certain feelings. And I think, you know, we both have children and our children's children and their children's children will inherit our wins and our losses and our mistakes. And uh, that's obvious. But what's quite apparent to, to a lot of people is there's a, a cacophony of sound. There's a moment in Movement 5, the start of Movement 5, where you hear so many voices Familiar voices, Greta, for example. And she's contrasted with a news report from the, th- from the 70s, you know, hmm. 40, 50 years earlier, saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that moment is not just about those personalities. It's quite the opposite. It's actually just about noise. This kind of echo chamber of opinion, and, which is, it can be quite antagonistic. It can provoke and poke as well. And when that happens, my observations are when that happens too, too rapidly or too, when it gets so heated, it can actually have the opposite effect. Sure. People don't change, they switch off.
2: Or they knee-jerk against it. Which or they I think, fight against yeah. it.
1: And so I wanted it to feel like a kind of cacophony and then go into a kind of arpeggio of strings that represent birds flying mm. as well as the sound of an ambulance. I don't think I've mentioned that, but it's, uh, it's I'm actually... I'm not sure I
2: picked up on the ambulance. Yeah, I don't think anyone to... would get that. I'll go back to it and <laughs> hear it. A siren. Hear it.
1: But also, uh, those seven movements, I did one other thing, which was I, I, again, put the recording on a tape. I didn't plant it or bury it. I put it on my studio roof on what happened to be the hottest day of recorded time in the UK, and it got completely sunburnt. And I then took that sunburnt tape and mixed it into the finished audio. So it's running in parallel with the clean master. The clean audio signal is running in parallel with the distorted sunburnt one.
2: What does it look and sound like, the sunburnt tape?
1: Um, It's here somewhere. Well, actually, Blue Peter moment. This is exactly as how it sounded.
2: amazing that you had it ready right there. I thought about (laughs) it, I thought you'd
1: be interested. So if you listen to this, you'll hear these kind of...
2: It as well, and I think it's partly because growing up listening to all kinds of different dance music, industrial music, the kind of gnarliness of it actually it's appeals. Gnarly, to me, yeah. I kind of feel like it's very textural and kind of makes me want to like really.
1: And you hear those clicks.
2: Yes, but again, even that I kind of like There's because there is a musicality to it. There is a musicality in the same well, not in the same way, but what kind of sprung to mind is when you get a really dirty piece of vinyl that hasn't been cleaned and all the kind of pops and fuzz that you hear on that mm-hmm. obviously that's for very different reasons but and that's yeah that's that's oh. such a cool thing to do what how, how hot was it that day because I know we've had some crazy temperatures 40. in London.
1: It I think it was the recorded temperature.
2: So it's kind of taking taking the music to extremes both in terms of yeah oh, heat what, and what, what I
1: wanted to do maybe I'm trying to articulate this is as the movements are thawing, these seven movements are, are progressing, the fidelity of the audio is getting worse. But the composition is becoming more hopeful. So, over seven movements, as the music arguably becomes more hopeful, reaches a climax of a Cayley, underneath, the fidelity is getting worse and worse. And that was my only kind of statement, mm. a kind of observation I remember looking out the window it was uh, on a particularly hot February or something and people were in t-shirts in Victoria Mm -hmm. Park dancing to the end of days but online it was doom gloom fight and flight and I thought well you should celebrate and cherish the natural world at all times but it did make me think that there's also a kind of ignorance to the fragility below you. And so I thought, well, that would be a neat way to put it in would be to, if the music's getting happier, but underneath it's getting worse Mm. and worse and actually a little bit more mono and it's becoming more, you know, its stereo field is becoming narrower and it's popping and cracking. Mm. And so that that was all I wanted to do with it. And so when asked to do this companion piece
2: This piano album. This piano album. Mm
1: -hmm. I'd never done just a pure piano album. And I thought to myself, I understand, you know, the idea here is we've got quite a complex string, poetry, field recordings. There's a lot going on This this seven-piece, seven-movement work. It'd be interesting to see if I could just play it so simply on the piano in seven movements, which was a great challenge for me. And actually much harder than I thought. Right, it was great. So it was lovely to take all these melodies. And because I'm not, you know, I, I write on the instrument, but I'm not, you know, I can't play Chopin. I can't, you know, I play uh, by ear and I write. Uh, and I can read music, of course, but I, I, I thought it would be a great challenge to arrange these with a colleague so I can't play them. So I have to learn to play them. So I arranged them uh, with a lot of sustain and decay and and really slow, almost like, it's really down-tempo furniture music. I did that, I arranged it, and then I was thinking, okay, well, how can I record it in a way that's interesting to me?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And I thought, I wonder how the ice would hear the music. So I thought, why don't I put one of the microphones for recording the piano in a block of ice and that ice will thaw and you might hear these little drips and it might kind of inform the recording. So that was the the kind of first of two ideas and the second idea was to instead of taking a piano to a cave, a glacial cave in Norway and recording there which is an incredibly gluttonous thing to do. <laughs> I thought, could I take the acoustic, the reverb of the cave and bring it to my studio? So the the recording captured in that three-dimensional space, bring it back to my studio and mix with it. And technology allows us to do that now. So then I thought, oh, cool. I could mix the piano album, first record it with th- one of the mics in an ice cube, big ice block, and secondly... The reverb, the echo, which is quite common to use in recording since the 50s, we've used echo to, to, to make voices feel warmer or, or fill sound like they're in an auditorium, for example. Yeah,
2: add atmosphere.
1: But uh, I thought it'd be cool to mix the piano with the sound of a glacial cave. And I found these group of scientists that had done a whole bunch of field recordings in Svalbard in Norway this uh, glacial caves and then there's a piece of software which to me was kind of a game changer in mixing because it meant I could really take a place and mix it into my music mm-hmm. and I've done it a lot with Orkney.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about how it works when you drop a hydrophone into that should, block of ice? I thought we should just do it I mean I really, you know, you don't often get to see something um, demonstrated like that so absolutely I'd love to
1: so on this particular block, we've got a large hole which we've drilled into the top, which I'm filling with water.
2: All of these sounds are very satisfying, <laughs> even the are... water like filling up the, the cube.
1: Well, you see, what a recording studio does is it um, encourages you to hear every every nuanced detail so you can hear our tummies rumble or the water.
2: Yes, slash. the tummy rumbling I, I apologise for. Um, <laughs> Why does it, obviously it's a hydrophone, but I mean, what does the water do? Why does it need water? Why can't you just stick the microphone in the ice?
1: Well, this, uh, I did the first one and I I found the results. Were they muffled? Yeah, a bit like kind of, it takes the top uh, kind of 20,000 hertz down to 3,000. It scoops that off a little bit, becomes more muffled. I wanted to try this different approach for two reasons. One, this is a, a loaned, hydrofoam, which is very expensive. And I didn't want to just stick it in the freezer. Uh, And I thought, I wonder if it was to just kind of float in the water, in a hole in a block of ice. So kind of be more submerged rather than just frozen. It might give a more accurate sound to um, what it would be like to be inside a block of ice. Mm -hmm. But yes, they were originally tools for science, to submerge underneath lakes and uh, rivers and things like that.
2: I think I saw a, a, a documentary with Royichi Sakamoto in the Arctic, and he he must have been using a hydrophone, he but he was he was sort of talking about fishing for sounds, which I thought was just so charming. It's lovely. Yeah. That's exa-
1: I've, I've taken that term because I love that interview, and I, I love his work, and yeah. that, that, that film is wonderful. But yeah, it's fishing for sounds. So we're fishing in the ice, even dipping it in, Made it feel a bit more like fishing.
2: <laughs> the, the clarity of the ice is really striking me as well. I mean, it kind of looks iridescent, doesn't it?
1: And in the last hour, it's probably melted about an inch of water.
2: Well, there's been this constant backdrop, hasn't there? And, and you know, you kind of think that you've, you, think, you start thinking that you can predict the rhythm, but mm. then it kind of, it's unpredictable. It is unpredictable. Because you get these little tiny torrents as well. It does.
1: I mean, I suppose it's kind of, so it's it's in the middle of a, how thick do you think that is? So kind of five, six inches, in effectively a pool of water. And I'm interested how sound travels through different substances. I recorded, so if that's all set up, you can imagine, I would then record the piano with the three mics, two microphones on the piano mm-hmm. here, and then that main one... my favorite thing is hearing the hearing it
2: melt. Yeah, it's so lovely. Absolutely. I was, that was just glorious, you know, th- those few moments on the piano and then just the the water. It was almost like a, a kind of unpredictable duet, I guess. It was it was not it? Yeah. I mean,
1: the, the, the unpredictability side is it is a duet. But then that is the fine tapestry of life for us really deep ecology and living with the natural world is a duet in itself, isn't yeah.
2: it? Yeah, but I think maybe we've had a sort of certain reawakening to that in recent years, both in terms of the elements and and also just other creatures around us as well. You know, one of the first things that you said when I met you was, you know, just this excitement at hearing an unfamiliar bird call very early in the morning and, mm. and the fact that you were hearing a peregrine in the heart of the city of London.
1: Hunting, yeah, hunting. <laughs> having its breakfast, yeah, and then
2: finding its breakfast later on. <laughs> um, but yeah, the kind of the beauty and the brutality of that is is really something. I think the final thing I wanted to ask you, if that's okay, is that you're about to go out on tour, both across the UK and you've got European dates as well. And I'm really curious about how you're going to present this latest work mm. to a live audience.
1: Oh well, thank you. I mean, I suppose. I've done it with a a large ensemble and I wanted to see if I could make it more intimate. So I'm doing it with a quartet and I've taken some of the movements and rearranged some of them so that they involve the piano versions as well as the orchestra so they can kind of combine with the strings. But equally I'm playing some of my Orkney songs. And I hope that as a bunch of repertoire of music It's really just a celebration of the natural world and and an opportunity to kind of go on a little journey through different places and spaces.
2: Uh, Sounds absolutely brilliant. And I love how it's coming together and constantly evolving with this fluidity as a body of work. Erlen Cooper, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Would you like a nice drink?
2: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) that sounds very refreshing. I don't mind if I do.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcast. That was Arwa Hayter in conversation with Scottish composer Erland Cooper. And we'll put Arwa's lovely piece about him in the show notes. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and other special treats drop every Friday and Tuesday. Find more of the great journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. I'm Christy Taylor. Bye for now.
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.